0: Well, good morning, Cane Bay. So good to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those and turn them on or flip them open to Matthew chapter 6. A very familiar passage. It's going to take me just a few minutes to get there. Uh, We're going to be talking about Ryan's story and and others. Uh, Let me just say, I love Darren. Congratulations that. The only thing I have against him is his epic beard. Uh, I just can't quite pull it off, but I don't know if that disqualifies him to be an elder Uh, A wonderful man, great family. Um, As we continue this series, Captive, addressing depression and anxiety, I want to focus on what I believe, I believe, is the foundational reason that we so often find ourselves struggling with the darkness and depression, uh, the ruminating anxieties and fear of depression, whether that is... um, Whether you deal with that from a clinical perspective as a diagnosis, um, which is, is certainly very, very real, or whether it's situational and life just brings you to these moments where angst is just a part of who you are in these seasons or the isolating darkness of depression hits you, all of us, all of us find ourselves in these moments Uh, of of having to deal with anxiety and depression. I think it's a good thing that we look to Scripture for encouragement on how to address this. In fact, it was, as I read it, it was the mission of Jesus Himself. According to John chapter 10, He came to pay for and give us, provide us, a life that He says is a full life or an abundant life, as some translations say. And not only did he come to give it, but he paid for it. And there's great reason to say amen, but often that abundant life escapes us. And we read it in Scripture, and we know that we can have it, but yet we look at our lives and our emotions, and, and we see this disconnect. Like, my life isn't all that abundant. My life is not quite full, and... And so it leads to two kind of symptoms. One of them is lethargy, kind of like a sluggish faith. Like we, we know what to say, we know what to do, and we, we, we get up in the morning, we have our quiet time, we come to church. But there's just this kind of lethargy, if you will, about our walk with Jesus. It's just not quite there. And then the second thing that flows from that is kind of a, a faking it. I'm really good at this one. I know what to say. I know what to do. I know how to dress. I know the language. I know when to raise my hands. I know when to clap. And yet I fake it. And we come up with all these silly cliches, you know, like we're too blessed to be stressed. All right? I'm the head and not the tail. And when you come into church, when we lie, they say, how you doing? And we all say, and we're lying. And so this lethargy, this sluggishness, and this faking it just creates this disconnect between abundant life, like we read in Scripture, and what we're actually experiencing. And those are two symptoms of both anxiety and depression. Certainly not all of them, but I think it's the two most prevalent self-inflicted ones. And so if you find yourself struggling with this lethargic, pretending, then, then maybe God's got something uh, for you today. And I believe that the dividing line, if you will, between the abundant life that we read about, the full life that Jesus paid for, and where we are, me included, the dividing line is Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Oftentimes, when we walk in unforgiveness, we err on the side, we drift toward these depressive moments, anxiousness, fear, worry, ruminations, or just constantly mulling over the same thing, and it's likely that we are walking in unforgiveness. Now, let's talk about forgiveness first. It's the foundational truth and the greatest hope of the Christian, is that our sins are forgiven. Now, I say that, and you go, yeah, I know that, and we sort of lose sight of the weightiness of that. I love what Charles Spurgeon says in 1873. One of his favorite hymns uh, became part of most of his messages, and it's this, this line from the song. He says, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, isn't that good? And and we say amen, because forgiveness is so foundational to who we are. We are forgiven, and forgive uh, forgiven uh, forgiveness brings freedom. So, if you want a one-word definition of what forgiveness is, that's it: freedom. The question is, how do we give it? So this greatest news that brings forgiveness is the gospel that you and I, born in our sins, in our transgressions, forever separated from a holy, righteous, just God, unable to bridge the gap by any works, any words, any thoughts, or any deeds that you and I do, we are forever separated from God, that Jesus comes and the wrath of God poured out onto him. He dies, is buried, and is resurrected, and he bridges the gap between us and God. If that's not an amen-worthy thing, I don't know what is. That's forgiveness. It's wonderful. And then us as believers, in our freedom, we are then motivated to go out and take this glorious message that we have to everyone who we encounter. We're now the light. We're the city on the hill. We're the light in dark spaces. We've been forgiven. We've been set free, and now we take that freedom to every man, woman and child where we live, work, and play. Right? And so this freedom brings with it a burden. Darren, who I wholeheartedly accept for his beard endorse for eldership, I can't wait to see. We were talking earlier uh, before service, and he now bears a burden for this church. He and Heather will agonize over this church as they should. But it's not just for church leaders. It's for all of us as believers. It should come with. Freedom brings a burden that we now go out into the places where we live, where we work, and where we play, and we look around and we see people that think they have light, but they live in total darkness. They don't know that they're in darkness until you walk in the room. And your light now provides them with another option, another way. The kingdom of God is at hand. But if we don't experience that freedom, then they'll never hear the gospel. If the freedom that Christians enjoy in Christ is because of forgiveness, then the greatest captivity for the Christian is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness... Since it's so foundational, forgiveness is so foundational to our freedom, unforgiveness is quite the focus of the enemy. And we don't talk much about him. We don't really need to. He's a bit of a punk and he's a lie. He's a father of lies. He's a defeated foe. He never wins. We win. But we do need to talk about him. He does have some enjoyments uh, for a short season. And one of those is to see you and I walking in unforgiveness. He loves it. He arranges for it. He wants you to walk in unforgiveness. And you know why? Because it shuts us up. It keeps us quiet. It turns everything inward to us. It's all about me now what's been done to me my hurts my wounds and I'm not free I'm actually bound up I'm not really able to share anything with anybody else except for what's been hurt who's done something to me what wrong and it shuts us up they love it the enemy loves it when we walk in unforgiveness unforgiveness arrests our attention it captures our passions and it dominates our focus so the question is, how do we get it? How do we get forgiveness? What's the definition of forgiveness? It is freedom, but how do we get it? What's step one? How do I know when I've achieved it? How do I know when I've reached success in forgiving myself or someone else? And so we look to Scripture. For those answers, And I think one, there's many, many verses and passages we could choose, and so I think you're very familiar with this one in Matthew chapter 6. This is Jesus talking to those around him about prayer, and so if you've been in church once or you've lived your whole life, chances are you know many of this by heart, and so let's read it. I'm out of the English Standard Version today, uh, verse number 9. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he starts off by doing what? Acknowledging God. He tells God who he is. You're holy. Your name is great. Your kingdom needs to come. Now I'm a believer. I have freedom and I want your kingdom to come here where I am. And it's, it's a pragmatic thing. We want God's kingdom to invade our dark world, and we want to be a part of it. And that's the beginning of this prayer. God, you're great. Your name is holy. We want your kingdom become, your will to be done. And then he goes on, and give us this day our daily bread. That word give there is a commissioning statement. It's God, endorse the day, and give us what we need to have the day endorsed. That's what he's saying. Give us what we need as you've commissioned us for the day. And then he seems to switch gears. He goes from who God is to what God gives us. And then he says this in verse 12: And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Those two terms go together. Forgiveness of us, and we forgive others. And if we walk in unforgiveness, we're led into temptation and evil. Do you see that? They're partners. We're forgiven and we forgive or else we're in temptation and evil. Do you see that? And then he 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 stops the prayer there because in verse 14, he's not talking to God anymore. He's talking to those around him. And he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you don't, Neither will your father forgive you. Very sobering words, isn't it? And we don't need to candy coat that. Just read it for what it is. You don't give it, you don't get it. And so that should wake us up that forgiveness is a key to our walk with God. So what is it? It's a legal term. It's a part of God's justice system. The law, God's law, creates the standard just like the speed limit is a law, it's, it creates a standard, and then the violation of the standard is called sin. And in order to get forgiveness for the violation of the law, you have to go into God's justice system, which is a courtroom. You've got to go to court. You want forgiveness? You've got to go to court. That's the only place where God's justice system plays itself out. How many of you guys have been to court? I'm not going to ask you Why? I'm just saying, how many of y'all? Okay. Maybe I'll ask you why after church. Those are fun stories. And so we have to go to court. We've got to go in as one of two positions. So when you walk into court, who is the person that sits high, elevated, in a, a, a chair in the center of the room? Who is that? That's the judge. That's right. And then typically off to the left is the victim. And then off to the right is the defendant. And then they have their representation, right? It's just kind of the basics. So the first question is, in this courtroom, who is the only person who has the authority to forgive a crime? That's right. The judge. So we don't forgive because we can't. We don't have the authority to. And so often, that's the biggest hurdle. Is that a victim will walk into court and try to talk it out and offer forgiveness to a defendant, and they don't have a right to. It's not their law to forgive. Interesting, isn't it? Judge is the only one who can forgive a crime. And so what is forgiveness? If that's not, if we don't have the authority to forgive, what is it? Well, we go into court and the very first thing we need to do is recognize who the judge is. It's just like this prayer in Matthew 6. The very first thing that Jesus said is recognize who you're talking to. Recognize who is sitting on the throne. We do not want to run into this room flippant, angry, throwing a hissy fit without recognizing that the God of the universe is sitting on the throne. If you look at Isaiah 6, King Hezekiah has died. And Isaiah is sort of the the representative of the nation. He's the prophet of the nation. And the very first thing he does is he seeks the Lord. And oh, he finds him. And the next five verses talk about this vision that Isaiah had of of God seated on this massive throne in the temple. And how big and grand he is. And his train of his robe fills the temple. And this one angel saying to the other angel, holy, holy, holy. And then the whole place shakes and fills with smoke. And Isaiah, recognizing the judge, says this, woe is me. I'm so lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips because I've seen the judge. John in Revelations before he describes these 22 plus chapters of amazing vision. It takes him 17 verses in chapter 1 before he recognizes that he's before the God of the universe, the holy, righteous, just judge. And he sees him and verse 17 says, I fell down like a dead man. Done! And you and I need to do the same. This judge is worth fearing we recognize who we're coming before you hear me we've got to recognize who he is the fear of the Lord the Bible says this over 600 times the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom the fear of the Lord brings long life the fear of the Lord brings approval the fear of the Lord brings blessings time and time again the fear the reverence the awestruckness of of who this is, we are walking before, brings us to our knees. We fear Him, but we are welcomed by Him. Isn't that crazy? That this judge that Jesus said, don't fear man who can take your body's life away from you. Fear the judge. But yet this same judge, according to so many scriptures, calls us to his presence. Ephesians 2 says this, Roman 5, look at Hebrews 4, where he says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Look at verse 16. Let us then with Confident. Some translations say boldly come, draw near to the throne of grace so that we can find mercy and peace. And that is exactly what we need. We come to the judge understanding who he is, who we are, and that he welcomes us. Are you with me? It's very important. We could spend hours and days and weeks talking about the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and the fact that He somehow, in His grace and mercy, says, come in, I want to hear from you. We can't just walk past that fact. And so with fear and trembling, and yet with thanksgiving, and praise. We come in to the judge who welcomes us. And the rule of this court is simply this. After you've taken your seat, so right now you decide, do you want to be a victim and process forgiveness? Or do you want to be a defendant and process forgiveness? You decide, but either way, the rule of the court is that all authority belongs to him. Therefore, everything has to go through him. Have you ever in your life seen a courtroom where the defendant and the victim are allowed to talk to one another just openly in court? And the answer is, no, you have not, unless it's a chaotic courtroom. Everything has to go through the judge. And so oftentimes when we we fail to forgive or we say that we forgive people or we forgive ourselves or that we've been forgiven, what we're saying is we talked it out, and that's not right. That's illegal. Everything has to go to the judge who is the only one who has the authority to forgive. You follow me? And so we take our seats and we'll start with the victim. A crime has been committed against you. And so we sit down in the victim's seat. We don't want to stay there, do we? We don't want this to identify who we are. We don't want to be labeled the victim our whole lives. We want freedom, right? We want to, we want to be free to go and, and take the gospel in the dark places, right? We want to be free, but as a victim, we can't do this. And so we sit in the victim's seat with the intentions of not getting comfortable. And so there are three rules for the victims, and here they are. The first rule is you must testify. The judge cannot forgive what is not presented before him. Look at Psalm 62, verse 8. Trust in him, the judge, at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. He's a refuge for us. And so what this psalm is saying is the judge wants to hear your heart. He wants you to pour it out. What did they do to you? How did that make you feel? What dam- damage has been done? What devastation has been done? Pour out your heart, and I think we get hung up here in this sort of weird reverence where we think we have to use words like vows and these and wherefore arts and stuff we 're not used to saying and that's not what this is saying. he is saying, I want transparency here 's an example, and the psalms are full of this psalms thirty five david's writing this verse seventeen he's testifying before the judge as a victim, and he says this. How long, O oh Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, the defendants. Let, them, let those who wink, not wink the eye, who hate me without cause. You have seen, O oh Lord, be not silent. Be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication. Do you hear the accusations there? David seems pretty comfortable telling God exactly what he says. And look at the accusations. He is is begging and pleading God. He's even suggesting that God is indifferent, that God is silent, and that God is asleep. Wake yourself, God. In other psalms, David asks God, are you deaf? Are you deaf, God? Is that what it is? In another Psalms, he says, God, are your arms too short to reach me? Do you have dinosaur arms, God? Is that what it is? I'm too far from you. My stuff is too messed up. You can't reach me. Is that what it is, God? Or is that just poetic? It's real. David understands that transparency is what God wants. The judge wants to hear every word, every raw emotion. He wants your testimony. Tell him what it did to you as a victim. And when you're done, you have all the time in the world. The judge is never going to call a break. He's never going to go in the back. He's always going to be there. He's never going to leave you, never going to forsake you. He's always on the throne. You have all the time in the world. And if you read these psalms, I'll challenge you, read through the psalms and you will see this flow. That will start out with this transparency like David did here. And he, he just, he throws up, God, here's my angst, here's my depression, here's my worry. Judge them, God, wake up and, and represent me. But the end of all of those psalms ends something like this, where in Psalms 35, the very end of that psalm, he says this, Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the wealth of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Do you see the ultimate trust David has? That's the reason he can be so transparent. I know this judge. He is holy, right, and true. But he's also a big boy, and he can take all of my stuff. I just need to pour out my heart to the judge. But in the end, I'm going to say, God, I trust you. He's never lost a case. He's billions and O. He the, the defendant is not going to get off. There's no DNA. There's no like surprise witness. It's going to testify. He's trustworthy. And you can testify to that. And so our first rule is that we must testify, but we still have not forgotten forgiveness. Rule number two: victims must release. Release. It's a wonderful word. I love it when we have sermons where pastors say that this word in the Greek means this," or this word in the Hebrew means that. We need to understand those things, because our Bible was not written in English. It was written in the two most richest languages on planet Earth. And, and just one Greek or Hebrew word, it takes tons of English words to translate. And, and our translators have to choose which one. And they agonize over it. That's basically why we have so many different translations. And in the, the New Testament, the word most often used to translate, translate the English word forgive is the Greek word, Atheimi. Atheimi. The definition of theimi, translated to forgive or forgiveness or forgiven, means to release. To surrender. To loose your hold of. The word picture would be like a tug of war. Where you're holding on and then you can't and you let go. And you surrender. You have to release. Why? Because the judge is trustworthy. See, forgiveness isn't we come into court, we whine and pitch a fit, and then we throw it on the floor and we try to walk out. That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is walking to the court knowing that there's only one person that is trustworthy enough with all of my stuff, all the hurt and the angst and the agony that I can trust him. I can give it and wrestle with it and then let it go and say, I trust you. I say nothing to the defendant. Everything goes to the judge. You follow me? You have to release. There's so many different scriptures. Psalms or uh, Philippians four: Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, pray. Testify. Ephesians six: Pray all the time in the Spirit. First Thessalonians five: Pray without ceasing. First Corinthians uh, four: Continue steadfastly. Ongoing process. In prayer, You've got to take responsibility to testify and release, surrender, let it go. Loosen your hold, not because I'm going to give him another chance, I'm going to give her another chance. He is trustworthy. He is right. He's worthy to handle it. You want to leave because you don't want to live your life as a victim anymore. Releasing equals freedom. Not releasing... Captivity. When we choose unforgiveness, it says more about our lack of trusting in the judge than it does about what they did to you. Your ultimate trust is not in the defendant being sorry. It's in the judge being righteous and worthy to hear and to hold on to what we let go of. And so we testify, we release, and we don't give up. Are you with me? So often people don't get this. It's because they they fail to work it out. I'm one of these. I want a microwave forgiveness. I want to plug it in, have it ding, and I'm done. And this this is a lifestyle that God's called us into. And so we keep doing it. We have to keep testifying. If you get out in the parking lot and you're all messed up again, you turn right back around and go right back into court. And the judge will say, come on. What's on your heart? Tell me. Be transparent. But trust me and loosen your grip. I can handle it. I've got it. I'll be with you. I'll walk you through the valley of the shadow of death. You don't need to fear anything. I'm there with you. Now let's move over to the other side of the courtroom. We've got the defendants. And it's basically the same three rules. The first rule, you have to testify. Only on this side of the courtroom, it's not really called a testimony as much as it's called a plea. So now we're defendants. And we've caused some damage. And we want forgiveness just like the victims. We want to be free. We don't want to be defendants our whole life. We don't want to walk around with a chip on our shoulder and mad and angry at the world and try to defend ourselves because of our upbringing or what we've been victim of. We want to be free, and so we have to testify. One of the greatest examples is Psalms 51. Now, Psalms 51, very popular, uh, well-known. This is David after he had gazed on Bathsheba, sent for her, slept with her, and she is now pregnant. David finds out. He summons her husband in from war and says, go home, R&R, because the baby needs to look like it's yours. And Uriah does not do that. And so David adds to his adulterous ways by having him killed. And he carries the the letter with him. The death sentence goes in his pocket out to war. And then the prophet confronts David. And David knows he's undone. And as a defendant... He falls on his face and he writes these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And listen to verse 4. Against you, God, you the judge, you only have I sinned. What? What about her family? What about Uriah? And David rightfully says, you're the only one that I've sinned against. Wash me. My sin is always in front of me. I need freedom. You must testify. And you must testify transparently. And understand that it is not the victim you address, it is the judge. Rule number two, we repent for release. We talked about this word release, but we need to repent in order to be free, to get forgiveness. Look at 1 Corinthians 7.10. It says, for godly grief produces a Repentance. That leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Now repentance typically, it's a word that gets a bad rap. Because when we say it, we deepen our voice and point our finger and say, repent. And that's not what it means. Spurgeon would say, so many people are coming to faith. But please tell me that my old friend, my dear friend, repentance is not dead. For I love repentance. Repentance. Dave Guzik, one of my favorite commentators, says this, Repentance describes the very act of coming to God. You can't turn towards God without turning from the things he is against. Isn't that wonderful? And this repent for release is so helpful, especially when we're our own victims. You with me? The stupid things that I do that wound me. And I go there to repent of my own stuff. I'm my own victim. Turning from that so that I can be free is the greatest news. I'll tell you what was helpful here. Why Church of Bay has hit a home run with their huddle. Maybe you guys are in a huddle? You need to be. And the reason is James 5.16 says, confess your sin one to another. And pray for each other so that you might be healed. Anybody need healing in here? There's your freight right there. Confess your sins one to another. That's me and Dodger. I get forgiveness this way, but I get healing most often this way. And I tell him, I confess to him sin, not just the sin that I've done, but the sin that's been done to me. Most of us only get half of that. We go, let me tell you the dumb things I've done. That is not what this verse says. It says, confess sin, sin that's yours, sin that others have done to you. And when I do, and then dodge your praise for me and with me, guess what I can expect from God? I can then go to God and go, God, I have confessed my sins to another. I have repented to you. I have freedom. And now I can fully expect healing. James 5.16 is an amazing verse. And so the third rule. We've testified, we've repented, and the third rule is just like the victims, we do not give up. Taking responsibility to get to court, nobody can force you there. So let's stop blaming others for the way we feel, and let's take ownership of getting to court for our own stuff. Sit in the seat you need to sit in. The reason Jesus said forgive so that you will be forgiven is only because you can't sit in two seats at the same time. You get forgiveness so that you can give forgiveness. You can release. And that leads me to my biggest question. If you forget everything I've said, remember this question. Have you been forgiven? I don't mean as a defendant because you hurt somebody else. I mean, have you recognized that you and I are born defendants? You're born that way. We don't have to do anything to be a defendant. We're born with it. We're born in our trespasses, in our crimes, and we are guilty. Forever destined to spend all of eternity, billions and millions of years, and those are just drops in the bucket, separated from God in a very real place called hell. And there's nothing we can do about it. And the glorious news of the gospel is that God says you don't go straight to jail. You have an opportunity. I sent Jesus. I poured my wrath out on it. The book of Isaiah says that it was my good pleasure to kill him for you. Have you stood in the defendant's seat for the very first time? surrendered to the judge and said like Isaiah I'm a man of unclean lips I'm a woman of unclean lips God forgive me I repent and I need salvation and the reason is this as the worship team comes you can't give away what you first don't have if you don't have forgiveness if you have not been released then you can't release anybody so let me just challenge you with that. Just because you were born and raised in church doesn't mean that you're a believer. Have you had a surrendering moment where you have fallen before the judge and said, I'm done, and I need your forgiveness? Have you? Nobody knows but you. Bow your heads and close your eyes just for a second. If you are concerned about that question, then please do not leave this building without talking to somebody. Pastor Will will be in the back. I'll be in the back. You can't give away what you don't have. And so God, I I pray.